Hi, everyone. This is Jeff Leathers, and you're listening to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Today, our guest is Lowell Putnam, the co-founder and CEO of Quovo. Quovo is a financial data platform that provides companies with connectivity and insights for millions of consumer financial accounts across more than 14,000 different institutions. From FinTech innovators like SoFi and Betterment to the top retail banks, Quovo's unique data and analytics put it at the center of the FinTech revolution and give it visibility into banking, wealth management, insurance, payments, lending, and regulatory issues. On January 8th, Bloomberg announced that Quovo had been acquired by Plaid in the company's first acquisition. Lowell, congratulations, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So um, before we get into the acquisition, I think many of our listeners might not be familiar with what account connectivity is. Could you give us a quick summary of what Quovo and Plaid do? What is account connectivity, and what are some of the current use cases you're seeing in the market today? Sure. So I have a feeling that most of your listeners have actually used either our service or Plaid services at some point or another, but you may not realize it. So Quovo and Plaid are the service on the back end of whenever you are linking one of your financial accounts to another service or an application. So uh, if you've ever linked an account uh, to Venmo so you can pay your friend from your bank account, you're using one of our services. If you have funded a Betterment or Wealthfront robo-advisor account, from your checking account, you've used a service like ours. Uh, if you've used mint.com or another budgeting app that automatically pull in transaction data or balances for your bank accounts or investment accounts, you're using us. So today there isn't really a, a built out set of pipes that connect one financial institution to another, either in the US or anywhere else in the world for that matter. So third parties like Quovo and Plaid build that infrastructure ourselves and translate apples to apples, all of the data that lives between Bank of America, Citibank, Chase, Fidelity, were that uh, under the hood set of pipes that allow that data to move around. Perfect, perfect. So now um, to the big piece of news that just came out in early January, which is that Quova was actually acquired by Plaid um, in the company's first acquisition. You know, given that you guys, Quova and Plaid, are really the picks and shovels of this FinTech gold rush, what does this acquisition mean for your two companies? What does it mean for your clients? And more importantly, what does it mean for the larger fintech ecosystem? So it's still early to say, obviously, the, the news is, is really fresh. But um, I think the bottom line is more of the same, but way better. So exactly. a service like account connectivity is one place where redundancy of technology or two heads working on the same problem really are a one plus one equals three situation. So uh, both Plaid and Quovo have some of the same capabilities in how we get data from institutions, but there are a number of areas where Plaid has access and Quovo doesn't and vice versa. Um, and so together we're able to connect to more institutions, provide higher quality data access to our customers, uh, lower API latency, and more provide more tools to developers that are building the next set of great FinTech apps. Perfect, perfect. I do think that's going to prove to be a really solid partnership going forward. And going back to the start of the company though, I know Quovo has been a very long path for you, um, but going back to that start, why did you guys target wealth management originally rather than some of the other verticals that were out there? I know Plaid is an SF and they focus more on FinTechs, and you guys, being in New York, your bread and butter is really uh, wealth management. So tell us a little bit about why you focused on wealth management and what challenges did you have to overcome in order to service that segment of the market? Well, we really had no idea how complicated the wealth vertical was going to be when we entered it. But 
Ironically, that difficulty ended up being our biggest moat as we got a little bit of market traction. It was the one thing that our competitors really couldn't get into because the data is so much more complex. So mm-hmm. when we started the business, we actually, similar to Plaid, thought we'd be a B2C uh, fintech business. It's what everyone kind of wants to be, right? You want to build a cool app that your friends would use or your parents would use. Um, but in building the infrastructure under the hood, specifically for us in tracking investment accounts, uh, we were so bogged down in the weeds of the data problems, we realized that that's where the opportunity was. Um, and the timing was really, really good for this. So while we were or whacking through the most complicated investment data questions, the robo-advisor boom was just beginning. This is in 2012, 2013. The Betterments, Wealthfronts, Personal Capitals, um, those guys and even some others that aren't around today were just uh, really blowing up and they were getting a lot of attention. And all of the new wealth tech uh, innovation needed access to clean investment data. And so a number of people in the space turned to us because they knew we were working on these problems. And our first customers were very, very small fintech apps that needed clean investment data. But we started to build this little niche for ourselves, which is the folks that could get brokerage data and investment data in a way that was really, really clean, really normalized, tickers didn't change or break, corporate actions could get handled, multiple currencies didn't blow up at the API, all these these little things that investments uh, have to deal with that bank account data really doesn't have from a complexity standpoint became our, our bailiwick. That was the thing that we did no one else could do. Um, so then as we got bigger and our customers got bigger, uh, we were with uh, Betterment when they had a few thousand customers and then became tens of thousands and now it's hundreds of thousands of customers. We grew up alongside them. Very similar to how Plaid grew up with a number of their um, their largest customers like the Coinbase's of the world. Um, we were buoyed and we were able to partner with some of our own customers. Um, I guess we then took a sort of unusual um, tack because we started to knock on the doors of big enterprises. Um, It was a decision that we made very early on that to be a big company in this space, particularly one with wealth expertise, you had to have the Morgan Stanleys, the Stiefels, the JP Morgans as your clients if you wanted to have quality of revenue, not just quantity of revenue. So when we think about now the combination of Plaid and Quovo, like you said, um, there is this almost East Coast, West Coast split now so that um, Quovo has dealt with the I want to call it boring or complicated investment data and is sold into large enterprises as well as fintech companies. And Plaid has really done an amazing job penetrating the tech space. So together we span that full breadth of uh, account types, data types, and customer types. Awesome. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you've worked with both, you know, kind of startup fintech first uh, wealth managers like Betterment and Wealthfront. But you've also worked with traditional wealth managers from like the big wirehouses to um, smaller independent RAAs. That's a, a there's a very big difference between the cultures and, and the types of people that work at those companies. How is it different to sell to and serve those different types of, of client accounts, both the big and small and the tech and um, more business focused firms? So you're absolutely right. You need to use a different set of DNA or different set of muscles when you're working with each of those customer types. Um, That said, I think there is a slow process of convergence happening between the tech side of our business and the enterprise side. And and what I mean by that is that the large institutions are trying to build 
agile scrum teams are building innovation units. They're doing more than just making PowerPoint decks. They're actually building apps today in a way that they weren't four or five years ago. Um, and then on the other side, you have your betterments and wealth fronts that are major asset managers now. They have tens of billions of dollars under management now. And so they have grown up compliance problems. They have hundreds of people working there um, that need to look after a large number of client accounts. So there's this funny intersection that's starting to happen where some of our older fintech customers are looking more and more like enterprises. And some of our large enterprise customers are working directly with our APIs. And we are having developer to developer conversations with them. So today, the DNA is quite different between the two sets of our customers. But I think if you fast forward two, three, five years, we're going to see a similar sales cycle and implementation cycle with our types of products into both sides of our business. Perfect. And, uh, you know, earlier you mentioned that when you were getting started, the robo advisor revolution was really just kicking off. And you also mentioned the difficulty that companies have in building out a B2C offering. Um, so my question is, do you think that the robo advisor space is a little bit crowded right now? Um, or at least that maybe the major players are already set in place? Or do you see there as being an, there, there's an opportunity for new players to come in to design new products um, and really gain market share in that space? No, I think there is still a lot of opportunity. Um, one of the old sayings in asset management is that for every dollar that's invested tomorrow, 90, 90 cents of it is already invested today. So assets are sticky. The $17 trillion of invested assets or $20 trillion or whatever number you want to use out there are living somewhere today, um, which means that they're either going to stay where they are and better products will be built to retain those customers or those customers will stay through inertia or those assets are going to leave and the customers are going to go and find new opportunities. And um, I think that especially younger customers that are making up a larger and larger portion of the $20 billion out there, um, $20 trillion out there, are more willing to move their assets to better products that meet their needs. So I think that if you build a better mousetrap, people will absolutely take their money away from their current asset management solution and, and bring it over to you. I do think that the, the first wave or second wave or whatever wave of robo-advisors we're in now um, do have to worry about having a pure victory on their hands though, right? Have they redefined fundamentally the way that wealth management works? And I think they absolutely do. I have a Betterment account. I don't have my money in stocks. Uh, but at the same time, by redefining the way wealth management works into a slightly more commoditized product, are they just making a blueprint that is easier to replicate at the larger institutions out there or for new people to come in and actually build the competitor faster. Um, it's the classic innovator's dilemma at work in this space. So I guess my short answer is yes, absolutely. There are so many assets out there stuck in old mutual funds that are ready to leave if you have a compelling value proposition. But the other answer is the right answer for wealth management might actually be a more commoditizable product. Absolutely. Um, and when you guys were looking at wealth management and decided that you wanted to go outside, you know, or maybe the market pulled you out um, into other verticals like payments and lending, uh, what kind of use cases did you project were going to be important? And, and what kind of use cases have you seen be really important for the lenders and the payment processors that you've ended up working with? 
so it's been a fascinating transition away from really servicing a single vertical back three or four years ago into multiple verticals today. And it was, I'd like to take credit for it, but in, in large ways, our customers drove us that direction because the traditional lines are breaking down between what's a quote wealth company versus a lending company versus a payments company. Uh, there aren't as many monoline product companies as there were, and even startups today aren't monoline anymore. Stash has an awesome investment product, but then um, uh, announced the ability to buy single name stocks. And then they announced a high yield savings account and a payments card. And so all of a sudden, uh, there's been a rebundling of services, even at quote, small fintechs or medium sized fintechs. So to be a connectivity provider, or like you said, the picks and shovels, we end up giving these picks and shovels to the same customer for multiple use cases, which is what pulled us into new verticals. So for wealth, um, the use case is pretty similar. You learn about your customer's assets today, you prescribe them a path for tomorrow, and then you help execute on that. In lending, it is an assessment rather than a collection. You assess someone's credit worthiness, you analyze their cash flow, and then you try and fit them into a lending product or you decide if you can underwrite against them. Um, and then on the back end of the lending process, you service that customer by watching his or her transactions over time, watching his or her financial situation change, and then directly CHing money in and out of the account to, um, to pay for the loan over time uh, to service it, which is then pretty close to a payments use case. So we've gone from assessing for wealth to assessing for risk to servicing loan to an actual raw payment ACH money. And now you're sitting very, very close to an e-commerce use case where you're not quote servicing anyone. You're literally paying for goods and services. And that, and that actually, you know, the, the, the acquisition makes a whole lot of sense when, when you take that whole trend into account. Um, the fact that you're bringing together plaids, you know, um, great attributes along with your 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 complementary attributes in wealth management you're going to start to be able to service these customers that have rebundled a lot of financial services um in a much better and more holistic way i think that that's, that's exactly and it allows us as a combined company at plaid to not try and jam our customers or our prospects into predefined verticals or um, or, or walls. And I think that products themselves are getting blurrier. I, I don't know if you saw about a month ago, Robinhood got in a little bit of trouble because they had a new high yield savings account that didn't really work like a normal high yield savings account from an insurance standpoint. And now there was a bit of controversy over that. It showed that the traditional definitions of financial products can and will be changed, modded, mutated in some way. Um, and so as the underlying infrastructure beneath those products, we have to be as flexible or even more flexible than our customers have. Right. Absolutely. Um, and that, that definitely touches on the regulation piece as well, which is something that I know you've been deeply involved in. And um, when, when it comes to regulation in fintech, I, I generally think there are two different camps. There's the uh, be proactive camp and there's the ask for forgiveness camp. And obviously um, with that Robin Hood example, he saw that they they asked for forgiveness and it came back to bite them a little bit. But uh, what have you seen among the clients that you've worked with, uh, among the companies you've worked with as an advisor, has worked better? Uh, has it been the being proactive when it comes to regulation or has it been just kind of going fast and breaking things and, and, and uh, asking for forgiveness after that ends up happening? 
Well, it it depends on on the use case in in a lot of ways. I think that the the wealth management world actually has some of the oldest regulation in it. The 34 Act and the 40 Act both are pretty relevant today. And um, the underlying principles of regulation in the wealth space are still very accurate today. There's this concept of the quote, prudent man rule. The idea is basically, you can do a lot of stuff with people's money. Uh, when you give an advisor your money, you're giving them a huge amount of, of flexibility. And the standard is a really nice non-bright line standard. And this is a personal opinion I have where I like non-bright line regulation, like a quote, prudent man standard that the SEC uses. So a bright line regulation means you know exactly how close to shady you can be while still being on the right side of things. When you allow regulation to non-be bright line based, then it means that there's more interpretation and more complexity, but it also means that you haven't given someone a playbook on exactly how shady you can be without getting fined for it. Um, so in terms of encouraging innovation, I think that actually some of that fuzziness and some of that uncertainty is the best way to, um, to regulate the industry. Um, on the, the other side of the equation, you have the lending space, which doesn't have regulation as old as the wealth space, but the regulation FCRA is, I think, 30 or 40 years old at this point, and it just predates technology uh, the way it works today. However, it postdates a lot more technology than they had back in the 30s and 40s. And so FICRA was designed around the concept of data warehousing in a credit bureau world, which did exist in the 70s. Um, but as a result, it's a little bit more bright line. And so the bright lines that were written into FCRA aren't necessarily applicable today when the the way that a bureau works or the way that is transferred and warehoused is, is entirely different than it was even five years ago, let alone 35 years ago. So in the lending space, I think that there probably has to be a lot of reevaluation and there is a lot of attention being paid right now as to alternate credit scoring methods, alternate underwriting methods, because the playbook that we have for that from a regulation standpoint, in my personal opinion, is kind of just wrong. It is just old enough to be obsolete, but just new enough to uh, to have a view of the world that's almost like today's view of the world. Right. And I know that at least uh, on your guys' side, you've definitely taken a very proactive um, a proactive uh, address to regulation. Uh, what, what have you found, you know, being someone who came from an investment banking background and then as a technology uh, founder, what have you found that's been interesting about working with regulators, working with uh, politicians in D.C.? Um, and that whole process of making sure that they understand and, and making sure that your needs as a company and the needs of the overall ecosystem get met. Well, I, I guess I'm still in the honeymoon phase because I, it's been a year or year and a half since I've been spending a lot of time in D.C. And so I've been told by everyone down there that it'll wear off and I'll become a, a jade, you know, anti-Wapodian, you know, later. But right now <laughs> I'm really enjoying the process. And I, mainly because I think that I found the incredible amount of open-mindedness in Washington, D.C. I should get that quote framed and put somewhere and then probably regret it in the future. But <laughs> I'm amazed I'm amazed since our area of finance is the most complicated, right? We're dealing with sensitive data, dealing with clean technology that your average politician or regulator doesn't really understand yet. There's a lot of open-mindedness in D.C. to people saying, hey, can you tell me how this stuff works? And at least I found that walking in with a very open mind from our side as well, and honestly saying, this is what we know, 
this is what we're experimenting with. This is what could go wrong. And acknowledging the fears as being valid that the leaders have, um, I think we've been able to get a lot accomplished. And today, that's just open conversation about what a new end state might look like for open banking here in the U.S. or new underwriting principles. But I think uh, bringing both honesty and admitting uncertainty has has gone over much better than I ever would have expected in D.C. Right. And I, I've seen you, you guys have joined a, a decent number of these consortiums, um, these, these groups, both in Europe and the United States. Um, I saw recently, just uh, I think last week, that you guys joined the Financial Data Exchange as a board member. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about the purpose of, of Financial Data Exchange and, and how, how you guys might improve standards in the industry. Well, it's early, it's early to say, um, and uh, I'll be honest, I'm not always bullish on every organization out there. What I like about FDX is that it's bringing together aggregators, technology firms, regulators, um, and also industry, the institutions themselves. And um, while I don't know if a, a gold standard API specification is going to come out of FTX, and I don't even know if I care, it is creating a forum where people are required to talk to one another about these issues and candidly talk about the pros and cons to uh, various approaches to sharing data more. I think that the market has spoken so definitively over the last couple of years that customers want their data and they want to access new services using their data. We're no longer in a place where we have to argue, does aggregation matter? The answer is obviously yes. The question is, how do we do it safely and um, seamlessly? And so I think that FTX is a forum for that, which will provide an organizational framework, even if the, an API specification out of it is or isn't adopted. I think that the sort of, this is one, one of my personal soapboxes, that there's a misconception that without a unified standard in a data sharing world, there's no way to make progress forward. And I, I don't agree with that because our businesses today, Quovo and Plaid are sourcing data from literally tens of thousands of individual institutions with all of the individual inconsistencies and weirdnesses that happen at small credit unions and banks and German investment companies and all the weird places we get data today. That doesn't have to get rolled into a single unified spec for there to be an improvement. Going from 20,000 to one isn't necessary for improvement. Going from 20,000 to 10,000 would be a huge improvement. From 20,000 to 20 would be a spectacular improvement. And so I think that letting perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to open banking initiatives is something that all of us in the industry need to uh, keep in mind. Right. And, and the, you know, usually what's held up as the gold standard for a unified standard is, um, you know, the open banking, some of the open banking regulations that's been pushed through in the UK and in Europe. Um, yep. I, I saw that in November, you guys actually became the first U.S. financial account data provider to join the open banking directory in the UK as an ISP. What, what is your view about the differences between open banking in Europe and the way that it's handled in the United States, the strengths, the weaknesses, et cetera? Well, it's, it's top down in Europe and it's bottoms up here in the States. Um, so top down is easier to mandate in Europe when there are fewer institutions. Um, you just have less wood to chop when you mandate a spec and mandate uh, a use case. 
That said, the mandate that's in place with PSD2 and open banking in Europe and the UK is still for a subset of accounts. It's for primary checking accounts mainly. Um, it doesn't touch on retirement accounts or necessarily all types of loans. The complexity of, in people's wallets aren't fully accessible, even via, via the PSD2 open banking regulations, which is by far the most comprehensive that I know of out there. So they've made steps forward, uh, but even the regulation doesn't cover everything. And unfortunately, now they have to implement it. And so it's one thing to mandate. It's another thing to actually get it done. Um, and so that's gone very, very slowly, slower than they'd expected even. Compare that to the U.S., which is bottoms up, right? Every bank that wants to enter into a quasi-open banking ecosystem puts the time and money in to build an API set themselves and bring it to market. That means a lot more complexity because we're negotiating bilaterally and there are a number of different specs out there. It does mean that when Bank X makes an API, it works. And until they're ready to make it, they're not going to make it. And so there's a an accuracy and an integrity, I think, that we're getting from the process here in the state, that even though it's a bit disorganized and it is bilateral, when it works, it's working quite well. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that at least from a broad coverage standpoint, by the end of this year, the vast majority of people's deposits and deposit accounts will be available through some form of API access, um, which will be a really big win. But unfortunately, that leaves the long tail, which in the U.S. is longer than probably the rest of the world's institutions combined. And so figuring out how community banks and regional banks don't get left out of the, quote, open banking revolution is going to be both a policy challenge and a technology challenge, because um, what we don't want to see happen, and I say this as, you know, someone in the technology business, but also just as someone with money at a credit union, is we don't want to see small banks and institutions left out of innovation because they're not able to get their data into an open sharing environment. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, the smallest player of all is, is the consumer themselves. Um, last year in May, uh, the Treasury released a report that was like it was a big win for uh, both financial innovation and, and specifically for aggregators as well, um, saying that actually consumers have the right to access their own financial data, whether it be personally or even through a third party service like a Plaid, like a Quobo. Um, what's a huge next? win. Yeah, it was yes. it was it was the first time anyone had ever interpreted the Dodd-Frank 1033 section, which is like the most boring part of the most boring <laughs> regulation about how people are allowed to access their data. And what, what I loved about the Treasury's interpretation, which, as you said, is that third party access uh, or, quote, agented access is a fair interpretation of Dodd-Frank. It wasn't just that they said it, they said it as though we all should have known it already. And what I love about that is that it's the Treasury saying, okay, time out. They're not making a proclamation. They're just stating a fact that we all kind of should have realized by now. And if you weren't on the same page, that agented access is the only legitimate way to actually make open banking happen here, then you've got it wrong. And so that was great. The the casualness by which they they made that huge proclamation about 1033 was was one of the biggest wins we got. Right. And have you seen that uh, ever since then that that banks have really been in terms of making these you know uh, negotiations and these deals to actually you know have integrated APIs with Quovo? Have you seen that they've come around that there's there's a different tenor, a different tone, a different pace 
to the negotiations that you're working on with those banks over the last couple of years and since that happened even? Uh, <laughs> nothing moves quickly with a big bank. <laughs> um, I, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what has led to the increased engagement, which is certainly, you know, unarguable that, 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 that that's happened um, over the past year. I think it's largely been the increased adoption from consumers for services that you get through aggregation services. Um, it's honestly bank employees that are using services out there like Acorns and Betterment and Digit and all the rest of them and realizing that they're pretty great um, and realizing that these, these new apps don't necessarily pose a threat to their entrenched deposit base. I think that, that that's been the biggest mind shift uh, change that, that I, I've seen um, that um, or mindset shift because um, there's not a flight away from Chase or Citibank or Bank of America today. In fact, happier Chase customers are engaging with a proliferation of new apps and are able to try them on um, through better data access between their primary banking relationship and these new relationships. Sure. So I think in the future, there may be a threat to incumbents from uh, fintech apps, but the incumbents today realize that they're a great way to test and learn and make their customers happier um, without trying to silo them off from these interesting products. Right. And after that big win with, uh, from the treasury, you know, what's next in the regulatory agenda for aggregators? Is it creating that more unified standard? Is it, um, you know, helping those smaller banks, making sure they're not too small to succeed? Um, what, what are you guys really looking to go forward with as the regulatory agenda after, you know, that big win last summer? It's, it's everything, right? Um, I think that especially in today's political climate, and this is just my personal opinion, obviously, finding bipartisan areas of progress is more important than ever. So uh, regardless of what's important for Quovo and Plaid, um, we need to get things done that can get done in Washington. And so I would look for things like community bank, regional bank access. That's something that's certainly bipartisan. Um, that's really exciting. Uh, financial literacy and financial inclusion, uh, reducing the number of underbanked and unbanked Americans. That's something that is entirely bipartisan too. And so those are the types of initiatives that I think are going to be the ones that are easiest to make progress on because they make all of Washington happy and they provide wins to both parties. Right. Yeah. And that's what you want in the end. Okay. A couple more questions and then, and then we'll finish up. So you mentioned before that you've been with Betterment since they had just a few thousand customers. So I've seen this a lot that it seems like you guys actually take bets. Um, you put resources on smaller startups that you believe in their product. What do you generally look for when you, when someone comes to you with an idea, when someone comes to you with an, and MVPs, and they're asking, you know, to use Quovo and ask for some, you know, development resources and help from you guys. What do you look for in them to really say, well, this is going to take off. Um, we're going to be able to grow with them in the future. Well, I guess there, there are two questions in there. The one is who who is able to get more resources from us, and that's not my personal impression about how big they're going to get. That is their ability to work with us um, and their ability to be collaborative. If someone brings strong technical skills to their relationship with us, our developers are going to enjoy talking to them. Um, similarly, people who poke around in our APIs and find areas of data inconsistency or institutions where we're getting whatever taxable or non-taxable account types right, actually helping us improve our own product set 
is something that we love to see from small startups. Um, they pay attention to every single one of their customers, uh, which means that they see a lot more of the details of the data than we might in some cases. In terms of what makes for a successful large startup, um, it's really hard to say. I, I think that a accurate assessment of the opportunity is the one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs, at least I, didn't spend as much time thinking about early on at Quovo, and it probably would have behooved me or would have helped with my strategy if I thought more about big opportunities. So, okay, and it does, this doesn't mean how are you going to become the next Google or how are you going to become the next Facebook, but I love it when I meet entrepreneurs that can chart a path from a niche market to a large market, showing how their go-to-market strategy is winnable in the short term, and they can end up in a large business in the long term. That's what I really, really like. And Betterment has that, right? Which is a Betterment Wealthfront and a lot of the robo-advisors, they have targeted strategies to bring early adopters onto their platform, especially back when they were, quote, maverick options to traditional wealth management. And then we take a big step back and say, how big can these guys get? It is trillions of dollars of assets. You know, we look at rock and the vanguards of the world, even with very, very slim margins that those guys have um, and price compression continuing in that space. When you're at the big, big numbers, you have a big business. And, and I love seeing that. Perfect. And, you know, this is a student run podcast. And so the last question I wanted to just uh, get a little bit insight about your career. You know, I know that you're an informed investment, investment banker. Some of the students at Wharton, you know, they're former investment bankers or they might be going into it after graduating but a lot of them do have entrepreneurial aspirations. What advice do you have for younger folks who are making the transition from IB um, into entrepreneurship? And what did you learn yourself from that process? Well, I had a pretty easy transition because my bank went bankrupt and I got fired. So <laughs> I, was hel I was helped down, down the path pretty easily from, from Lehman and Barclays. Uh, it's really, really hard to step off the wheel um, and so I would never tell someone to do it when, when you're getting paid well. And even though you're working long hours, there's a certainty that you have working in banking. And there's also this transactional focus that I miss sometimes from banking. I guess it's been through a transaction. It's been kind of fun to feel that again, where when you make progress on a transaction, you're making progress towards a finish line. But starting your own business, there is no finish line out there, right? There's no, you could you chunk stuff out into, into smaller milestones. But when you go home at night, you don't leave after a transaction is done, take two days off, totally press restart on your brain and then come back in and start over again. That transactional nature of being a banker is not the case being an entrepreneur. And so that's definitely the biggest change in my opinion, which I haven't very much because it means that, you know, I get to hold on to problems for a long time and they don't disappear when a transaction is over. But especially for former bankers, being perpetually in it is something that I think is quite different than the, than a transactional business. Um, and I guess the other thing I say, which is like the pure teal was nobody else was, you know, everyone else thinks it's, it's false that you believe in, is that being really, really patient in fintech is, is important because um, we are all slaves to macro uh, um, sector conditions when you're the fintech space because you are being pushed around or moved around by large players, be they banks or wealth management firms. And so my advice is that 
building a business that may require a six-month process where a prospect disappears and then comes back in the funnel or a three-year sales cycle is a very real thing that can happen in fintech. And so patience is a virtue, I think, that makes people survivors in this space. Wonderful. Well, that patience does seem to have paid off in your case. Um, that's all about all the time that we have available. It's been great to hear your story about moving from that that more niche player focused on these 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 problems in wealth management to now covering several different verticals, um, pushing forward the regulatory agenda, and uh, even you know having this large acquisition by Plaid. Um, so thank you so much for your time, uh, Lowell, and sharing your insights um, with the Wharton FinTech community and the FinTech community at large. And again, congratulations on the acquisition. It's exciting to see what you've done with Quovo, um, and it'll be even more exciting to see how Quovo and Plaid work together to accelerate financial innovation um, in the U.S. and abroad.